I think there's no career strategy a lot in the mid-level. I think it's almost like the middle child syndrome in the workplace. People get stuck there because they don't have a strategy to get to the next level or to whatever they feel like their next thing is. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Our guest is Kimberly Brown. She is a career and leadership expert and the founder of Manifest Yourself, a leadership development company that helps organizations engage, develop, and advance women and people of color. She also released her first book last year called Next Move, Best Move, Transitioning into a Career You'll Love. Kimberly has also spent her career helping professionals develop in the workplace at education institutions, including Princeton University, Mercy College, and at American Express. We'll also note the Skim spoke to Kimberly this summer as she led our Skim U Career Edition in August. Kimberly, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. So we're excited to have you. Before we get into the conversation, we'd like to to warm it up a little bit with a quick lightning round. So quick questions, quick answers. Ready? Got it. Okay, Kimberly, what is a childhood nickname for you? KB Toys. (laughs) That's great. I love that. How how did that explain? (laughs) Just (laughs) where did that come from? I had a gymnastics instructor who used to call me KB Toys whenever <laughs> I used to run and do my floor and my floor routines, trampoline routines. I was like, come on, KB Toys, let's go. And I, I think folks nowadays probably won't know KB Toys, but oh my God. it was a thing back then. I loved it. And I also haven't heard of it in years. So thank you yes. for bringing me back today. <laughs> no problem. What was your most, what's been your most cringeworthy professional moment? Oh my goodness. So you know what? This happened recently. So I was keynoting an engagement. And at the end of the engagement, the first question that happened, someone asked me about my recent name change because I went through a divorce. And I was so floored. Like my body broke out into a sweat. Like I was just so shocked. Yeah. I was so shocked, so unexpected. I got it together. But it was like, I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine that someone asked me that question in front of a whole audience of 150 people. Well, to be clear, that's their most cringeworthy professional moment, not yours. Shame on them. Let's do the flip side of that. What's been your biggest like pinch me career moment? Ooh, probably the book deal. I think I was just so shocked so excited. I think even though you prepare for things, you get ready for things, you have the introduction, you have the network, you do all the things. I think the moment of actually signing on the line, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a published author. I was like, mama, I made it. Like, this is incredible. Like it was, it was a very big moment for me. That is a big moment. What would you say is the key to effective collaboration amongst colleagues? understanding everyone's point of view when coming to the project. I think that when professionals are working together, 
many times we may have our own career objectives. We may understand where we want to be shown or what we want to do. But if you're collaborating, if you can understand the perspectives of other people coming, is someone else up for promotion? That's why they're gunning to present it. Is someone really weak in one area and they need more experience? So that's why they're trying to work on this. Like, what is their perspective coming to the project? Like, what is it that they're looking to get out of it? And if you can communicate through that, it creates such a better environment for collaboration, especially on team projects. What is one thing that you do before you take on a big challenge? Probably some hype music. Like I'm a big Grey's Anatomy fan. Oh, Um, Oh, welcome. Welcome to the club. Oh my gosh. Okay. (laughs) I think about Amelia Shepard and when she does like the superwoman pose before she goes into her biggest surgeries. And for me... That didn't really resonate, but I generally put some hype music on. I love Jill Scott Hate on Me, (laughs) and that's generally what I'll play that will get me in the mood. I love that. Let's go all the way back and talk about how you started working in this space. How did you know you wanted to help others with their professional development? Because that's like a very, it's like you're a really good person. And (laughs) did you always know that about yourself? And then It's one thing to be like, I'm going to help others with their professional development, but also how did you know you were actually good at it? Okay. So this was 110% not the plan in any way, shape, or form. I think in high school, I wrote a paper that said I wanted to be a psychosocial social worker or something like that. So I knew like helping was around there. I wanted to be a music teacher at one point because I used to, I studied vocal jazz for quite a while. I fumbled in my career like most folks do. And I went back to higher ed at one point when I was really unhappy because I felt like, okay, when was the last time I was happy? I was in a college campus. People work on a college campus. Like I can figure this out. And I had a few jobs in higher ed. I got to the career counseling job and I remember it distinctly. There was a particular student who I still talk to on Instagram today and she got an internship and I knew it was as a direct result of working with me. And I was hooked at that moment of understanding like this is what it could do. I can help someone land a job which changes the trajectory of their life, their career, their family, their finances, all the things. And I was always obsessed with how I navigate the world of work and how to figure things out. I'm always big on professional development for myself. So I'm like, if I can help others do that in their career, I just got hooked. And I joked early on when I worked in higher ed, it's like, well, I help people make more money than me because when you work in higher ed, you don't really make a lot of money. Um, So most of my students, I'm looking at their offer letters and I'm like, well, yeah, that's more than me. Um, But I, I love it. And I realized I was good at it I think when I saw my students start to go through interview process and they do a lot better, seeing like the direct improvement that happened. And then as I started working with older populations, with alumni and with a mid-career, more senior level executives, especially in the salary negotiation realm, and really seeing like the scripts I was using, how I was coaching them and seeing how much more money they were able to make or the promotions they were able to get. I was like, okay, this is, I've got a thing here. This, this works. So I remember when I was in my own moment in my my 20s where I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Like, I can't figure out my path. And, you know, we all have those moments. People used to say, well, what interests you? What are you passionate about? And I like, I hated that question. I'm like, I don't know. Sleep. I was like watching TV. Like, I'm like, I don't know. What am I passionate about right now? Nothing. So you worked, you know, you spent many years of your career at academic institutions, helping students with their development and transition to workplace. How did you get people to identify their passion? And probably at a time when they're like, I don't know, stop asking me. (laughs) 
<laughs> so for me, I think we put a lot of pressure on like, let's figure it out. I think that with many people, we put this pressure to figure out like, what is the passion? What is the purpose? So with me, when I coach people, especially students, it's like, what do you feel like you can do for two years? What are you excited about? What are like the high level, like top five things that you would do? And then how can we put them in order of like, oh my gosh, if I got this job opportunity, I would do it tomorrow. Eh, you know, I guess I could do this for a year or so if I needed some money and I really, 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 really don't want to do this, but I'm broke and I don't want to eat ramen. So we're going to do this job just so we can pay the bills. So once we kind of create the order of operations, it's really deciding just to pull the trigger and make a decision and see if you like it. And I think I teach students and not even just students, I think across the board, it's that we can be passionate about something. We can be very interested. However, we won't know if we like it until we try it. There's no amount of informational interviews you can do that can compare to actually doing that job. So what do you think after doing all the research, what are you excited about that you think you can commit to for two years to build some skill sets? And then we'll reassess. What's the the most common mistake you see being made with people coming from, I think you talked a little bit about entry level, like feeling like they have to do something forever, but what about that mid-level? I think there's no career strategy a lot in the mid-level. I think it's almost like the middle child syndrome in the workplace. You're finally, hopefully working on something that you really like, that you're good at, but People get stuck there because they don't have a strategy to get to the next level or to whatever they feel like their next thing is. The reality is, you know, we're, we have to work. So we're going to be working for years upon years upon years. We need a plan, whether we're talking about different skills we want to have, different industries we want to experience. It doesn't necessarily just have to be a particular seniority level. It's understanding what is the gap between where you are right now and where you'd like to be next. I think that mid-tier folks, I think they're just so busy working that many times they forget to kind of put a strategy together to help themselves move forward. What is something, what is the biggest challenge that you have faced in your career that had to overcome? You know, I would probably say my biggest challenge was transitioning from higher education into corporate America. I joke with a lot of my clients as a transition that we see a lot of folks want to make from, you know, nonprofit, from education into corporate. I joke and say the biggest misconception is that when you're in these nonprofits or higher ed, that you're just baking brownies and celebrating birthdays every day. Everything's so light and happy and there's no metrics or KPIs or anything. So when you come into corporate, people always want to ask like, well, can you actually work hard? You know, it's not going to be all fluffy and stuff. And I think that I experienced a lot of that bias when I moved into corporate America. And I think overcoming that and also upskilling myself. It was an incredible job. I miss it to this day. I loved it. However, things move so fast. I was the first ever director of global diversity talent acquisition strategy. And I went from being by myself and the job being really centralized in the US to it becoming global within three months to when I left, I hired about a team of, I think I had about six to eight people. So it was a huge challenge to consistently expand myself, my own understanding of me, who I am as a leader, building a larger team, understanding global norms. It was probably the biggest challenge of my career, but the most rewarding. When you think about networking and sort of mentorship and, and like who should be on your bench, we all go to like our bench for or try to build our bench for different reasons, whether, you know, I'm trying to advance my career or I'm trying to ask for a raise or like I'm having trouble with this colleague and need help navigating. We all have those different people. As you made that transition into kind of the corporate world, what did your bench look like? And then what did you need it to become? 
Ooh, I love that you mentioned that, especially because I think people don't think about like overturning their bench when you're making career transitions. And that's really what had to happen. I had built a network largely in higher education. So the first thing I did was go out my network and I looked and, and saw who has made this transition already and who can help me play the game and learn the language. Because so I think when you're interviewing, especially for career transitioners, that language piece is so key. People literally just need to hear you say the things that are aligned to the job you want to be in so that they can feel it. it's like, oh, okay, they know their stuff. It's literally just a checkbox. And I think for me, it was reaching out to my network and finding those folks I joke and call those teachers. Like I needed teachers in my career. I had to go back to school and how do I get the language? How do I talk the talk? How do I present in the way that I need to present so that they understand that I'm meant to be here and that I know my stuff and would be successful in this job. And I'm also very big on professional associations. So anytime I'm making any type of transition, I generally try to find what is the network I should get involved with where I can meet more stakeholders who are aligned with where I'd like to go. Professional associations have been one of my secrets to success in the working world. I've always excelled very fast and been promoted and moved into various roles. And it's really because of the network I've built through professional associations. What's something that um, you're still working on? My confidence. I am someone who I think from the outside looking in, I do a lot of public speaking. I think I have a lot of fun. If you've seen, y'all have seen me speak on stage and all the things, like I like to do it, (laughs) but my confidence. This answer confused me. Like that was, yeah, I was not expecting that to be your answer. I don't think you need to work on that from an external perspective. From an external perspective. No, yeah, it makes, makes total sense. But inside I am the worst critic. I dissect all the things and the process I go through to prepare myself to be in the spotlight or on the stage. Like I am working on having a better sense of belief in myself and my abilities. And I think it it just comes from not necessarily having as much confidence as I would like to have. So, you know, therapy, therapy helps a lot, making sure that I celebrate my wins. But I think there's a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety on this side that I just don't let people see. You know, I'm in my book, I talk about my father and he, is, he was a sergeant, a very strict upbringing. I was grounded till I was 18. If it was not a school sanctioned activity, I could not go. So I am 100% a high performer, but I will do whatever it takes to perform highly. But I will put myself through all the stress that you just won't see unless you're literally in my home with me watching me freak out. How do your freakouts manifest? Um, so generally it's in my body, like my heart will be racing. I'll break out in a sweat. I have a lot of like confusion in my brain where I just can't like articulate myself properly. So if you're at my desk right now, I'm always writing down ideas before I go to bed. I'm writing down things to dump out my brain, but it's really a lot of anxiety that comes through my body. That very much speaks to me. Like that's actually how a lot of my anxiety manifests. So I'm curious, what do you do to keep that in check so that externally you come off a certain way. And then for yourself, how do you like actually make yourself feel better and kind of celebrate the wins that you should very much celebrate? So for me, the biggest thing I've been working on, especially now running my own company and not being in the corporate world is giving myself permission to give myself time. I think that when I was in corporate America, so many things were coming to me at the same time. You're not really taught to set yourself up for success. You're taught to be reactive and show up and perform and do what the people told you to do so you can get promoted and get a big bonus. And I think now what I teach professionals and what I do for myself is really making sure I give myself the time, the space to 
process, not overloading my calendar. So a day like today, I won't do any other interviews if I don't have to. Like when I was on book tour mode, yes, I did multiple interviews a day, but right now I'm not. So no, I'm not doing multiple interviews today. I'm not going to have another speaking engagement in the morning. I'm going to make sure that I'm well rested. I made sure I had time for lunch so I can set myself up to show the best person before whatever else is happening and not overloading myself. Although that sounds so simple as a high achiever, I will just book myself solid all day, every day. But that's made a big difference in allowing me the time and the space to just mentally prepare for whatever I need to show up for. I would not have guessed any of that. And, and I think that speaks to the point, but also want to say if, if um, I'm also my biggest critic and I offer this to you that um, people are and really inspired by you and, you know, we've, we've seen that firsthand. So do with that what you will, but, but just want to have you hear that today. What are the types of relationships that people need to surround themselves with professionally? So the types of relationships, I break them down into a few categories. So one, I feel like the teachers, which I kind of mentioned earlier. So the people who are literally teaching you something, because many times we put everything into the mentor relationship, which I'll chat about in a sec, but sometimes mentors don't have time to literally teach you how to do something, walk you through how to do that presentation, review the deck for you, teach you how to build out that Excel spreadsheet or read Microsoft Access, whatever it is, someone who can teach you a skill you need to close that gap. We obviously need peers, the people who are around us who help us mobilize projects. I think a lot of times we may be competing against our peers versus working with them and collaborating toward the goal. Mentors, the folks who can give you the in the moment feedback, they've been there, they've done that. And then I always say that we need a sponsors. I think that's the hot conversation now. Sponsors, I, I tell people that these are the ones who have the power to bring you from where you are to where you rightfully belong. And they literally can move the needle. So if you were to call someone today and say, hey, I really need to get into this meeting. If the person can get you into the meeting where the door is shut or get you the interview, that's a sponsor. I think making sure they have that power to move in the way that you need them to. And then the other side, the overlay that I put on that is that it needs to be internal and external to your company. I don't like my clients ever building their whole network inside of one company or one industry. That's just not safe. And it also helps you become a better professional when you're more well-rounded and can benchmark in different areas and you're just prepared. And it's not that I'm telling you not to be loyal to your company because if you're happy, yes, be loyal. But we don't want to wait for you to be unhappy and then you have to build this huge network, which takes time. You should always be looking internal and external, whether you're looking to move in your company or go externally later. Millennials and Gen Z have this reputation for moving around jobs a lot. And you started off, you know, in the beginning of this interview telling an example of somebody like staying in a job for two years. You said two years offhandedly. And I was like smiling to myself because I'm like, do you actually still mean two years? When you're giving people advice for how to build that network, how to get that sponsor to pull you up to where you belong, what is the advice you give to people that are especially like, you know, starting out or entering the middle part of their career of the tenure they should look at in a role? So I tell my people that tenure is also relative like to your role. Like how long does it take for you to master where you are? And every job can be a little bit different. For example, if you're in an inaugural role, you're building something from scratch with the strategy, the team, your first year, you may not really actually get to do a lot of work. You're building strategy, building relationships, you're ironing out the plan, you're starting to plant seeds. 
you may need three to five years in that role for that to be really a well-oiled machine. For some jobs that are much more task-oriented, where it's really mastering and learning the skill and just executing sometimes more entry-level or less senior positions, you may need a year and you could be good. I think it really depends on the role. But what I challenge people to think about is like, when have you mastered the role that you're in? And that's when we should start thinking about moving. But for generally, when I talk about millennials and we're in that mid-career state, generally two years for high achieving professionals who really are like intentional about their careers, generally two years is where they start to get an itch. So they may not necessarily need to move and get a completely new job, but they at least need to start thinking about maybe a lateral move, or maybe they need to ask for a new body of work or join a new working committee or a steering committee or something to make their job a little bit more robust, because that's when they definitely tend to get bored. One of the most frequently asked questions that I get is how do you actually approach people to start building a relationship? Like what is advice for finding that connection point without it being an awkward conversation? Oh gosh. So I think it's always a little awkward. You have to practice. I think it's terrible. It's the, I make so many references to dating and networking. It's really the same thing, like going to the bar and hoping someone talks to you and starting up a conversation. So if you're in person, I think I like to look for someone who looks lonely like me. That's my strategy. I find someone else and just start the conversation. I don't necessarily think about the elevator pitch or about making sure I get what I need or figure out like who they are. I like to warm myself up and just find someone who's also standing by themselves, who looks like they're a little nervous and say, hey, like, how did you learn about this event or conference or wherever we happen to be? And that I generally try and let the conversation just flow. I think many times when we think about networking, we're teaching networking, there's this feeling that we have to have like this firing squad of questions. When I used to live in New York City, when I used to go to dance class, I used to love going to Vixen Workout. How did I connect with the women in Vixen Workout after work? I didn't go into a firing squad of what you did, where you were like, oh, where do you live? How did you learn about Vixen Workout? What's the favorite dance routine that you've done so far? How long have you been here? Just natural questions to get to know them. And these are generally when it's peers. I think if we're talking about a Virtual context, yes, it takes more research. It definitely takes more attention to do that cold outreach in an email or LinkedIn. But I think start with a little conversation starter of like something that connects you to that person, something that you've learned to take it to the next level. And I and I think the hardest part, I think, after that is like how do you actually build the relationship? How do you have subsequent conversations? And I think we always focus on, I don't know where we learn that they need to be like a whole hour. Like it has to be lunch. It has to be dinner. And it's like, when you're talking to some of my sponsors, I can only talk to them for like 15, 20 minutes. And I think sometimes we need to take off some of the constraints that we've put on networking, relationship building, and it being this perfect container and allow it to be a little bit more fluid and getting to know the human as well as the body of work before we make our asks. How do you advise people to keep those relationships alive and to keep them strong? So I think it goes back to like the last part in like getting to know the human. When you get to know the human and not just the work, there's more points of connection. So it's if you knew someone just recently had a child, what were they for Halloween? You can reach out and be like, hey, just thought about you. I'm wondering what your daughter was for Halloween this year, blah, 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 blah. Like you can find little points of connection. 
Are they working on research? Are they back in school? Is there an article that came in their area? Did their company have news that you can be like, oh, I saw this recently happen. How does this change your area? Would love to hop on a quick 15 minute catch up call or 20 minute catch up coffee and just find little ways to insert yourself and have conversation because there's only so many times you can go over your resume, talk about what your next career goal is. Or think about things you could get feedback on. I think a lot of times for the mentor relationships, it's like, what happened in the workplace? Like earlier, you asked me about my cringeworthy moment. So if I was talking to one of my mentors, someone who I really respected, I'd be like, hey, something happened to me recently. I'd love to just walk through how I should have handled it. This is what I did, but I'd love to just kind of share it with you. That would be another point that isn't necessarily tied to whatever my next move is, but it allows that conversation to keep going. I'm so curious on what that advice would be. (laughs) Depends on which mentor I asked. Right. Yes. So I want to go to um, a listener question. So next up, we've got a listener question from Brie who wants to know, when is the right time to make an ask of someone? You were just getting into this a little bit. How do I know if it's too soon slash not the right time? Sometimes it can be hard to gauge. It is 100% hard to gauge no matter what. But I think many times, the first thing I say is like, does it really feel ingenuine? Like, did you just meet the person? Like, did you just meet them? They don't know you. You've barely had any conversation. Is it too soon? If it feels like it's too soon, it may be. But I think you have to, like the same way we talk about job descriptions, right? And women apply when they meet significantly more of the job description qualifications than men. It's like, when you really look at that job description, it's like, do you know that you can do it? Ask yourself the same thing. Do you really have a good relationship with this person? Are you going to get what you actually need because the relationship is at that level? So prime example, if I'm at a speaking event and someone knows one of the companies I used to work at, they ask me a question, we have a great dialogue. And later on, they say, hey, like I met you at this event. Could you refer me to a job here? If I were that person, you should know the referral is not going to be that great. I don't know anything about you. It's going to be like, hey, I met someone at XYZ event. They seem like they're okay interview at your own risk, but they reached out. You want the referral that's going to be like, oh my gosh, I've talked to them for the past three months. We've had coffee. I know this, I know that. You want that referral. So I think, think about, is it going to be the type of experience that you need, that you want, that you desire? And at the same time, I think I'm going to contradict myself. (laughs) And I'm like, I can't help it because I think I also want to acknowledge, like, let's say you just met someone at a company and there's a job open that you want to get. At the same time, shoot your shot, but just have realistic expectations for what the outcome will be. I know, for example, when I was interviewing in higher education, I was overqualified for one job. And the woman's like, literally, I would love to have you here, but there's no way that you're going to stay here more than a year. Like you're overqualified. We love you, but I want someone who wants to grow and stay here. It was a community of schools. So I would have easily gotten picked up and taken away and paid more money. And she literally was like, she only met me, I think, two times in an interview setting. She's like, reach out to me. If you apply to any other jobs in this community, I would love to help you. And I reached out and she 100% got me into other interviews and helped me land a subsequent job. So that's why I say shoot your shot sometimes when people ask or the opportunity is there because you never know. It could work or she could have done nothing. You just never know. I love that story and such good advice. We have one final question. Most important one. Who else should we have on the show? So, you know, I'm going to kind of point it to what I call my like lateral mentors. Her name is Jasmine Bland Hawthorne. She has a company called The Valley Pearl. When I was in corporate America, 
And I needed to understand how to build relationships with senior stakeholders. Nobody did it better. She had the language, the finesse, and how she went about building relationships with very senior folks always impressed me. She's now a friend of mine. It's funny if we tell the story, she, we didn't like each other. Well, I didn't really like her because she wasn't someone who replied to emails. And I can't stand people who like don't reply to emails and want to be super friendly in person. It's like, you couldn't respond to me. And I've emailed you like 10 times and we're working on this together. But now we call each other corporate bestie and I absolutely love her and her whole family. But when it comes to getting ready for that executive route, Jasmine, like I'm just always impressed with how she approaches situations. So I think I would punt it to her. Okay, we're going to follow up with you about Jasmine. Kimberly, thank you so much for your time. I'm so happy we got to have this conversation. Yes, indeed. It's been a great one. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise.